Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation, committed to helping more Mississippians obtain post-secondary credentials, college certificates, and degrees that lead to employment. More information about Woodward Hines Education Foundation at woodwardhines.org. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, February 23rd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, find out why advocates say it's time for lawmakers to make funding daycare a priority. If we say just go increase it by whatever, a million, two million dollars, well, that's got to come from somewhere. You get into a balancing act, are you going to go cut someone else? Then a conversation on the future of social workers in the state. And we'll hear from an expert on how tax law changes could affect Mississippians. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. for affordable early childhood daycare say there's a desperate need for more funding in Mississippi. House Democrat Sheck Taylor of Starkville owns a daycare center. He says the federal government provides a voucher program to help low-income families pay for daycare, but the State Department of Human Services has to match the funds. In 2016, Taylor says DHS returned $13 million to the feds, saying state budget cuts left it unable to pay the match. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier more about the state of children's funding. It's an economic development issue. It's a workforce development issue. Childcare affects every facet of life that we have as far as employment is concerned. The state of Mississippi is blessed to have a young workforce. But if they cannot have childcare, then they cannot work. So our best minds sometimes will be locked out and left out. The average house goal is actually 2.5 kids. So that means you're paying a car note every month just to buy with childcare. How does this low-income funding work from the government? Well, supposedly what happens, the money is given to DHS in the form of a certificate. And that certificate is actually given to the, to the, chi- I mean, to the parent. The parent is allowed to take that to any child care organization that will accept that certificate. It pays a portion, sometimes 50%, 60% is on a sliding fee scale based on your income, but it's never enough. It's never enough to cover the fees of the agency, the child care provider, and that of the parent. So at the end of the day, we have not, fund, we have not fully funded uh, early childhood education. We have not fully funded what, um, what's required by DHS. We have to do more, and we cannot allow $13 million to go back ever again to the federal government. 
Explain how that happens. What is Mississippi's role if this money is coming from the federal government? Mississippi's role is to provide a match, and that match requirement is very important. And so the next question is, why didn't we do it? Well, it's because of political will. You have to vote in people who are sympathetic to children and families. And if that's not happening, then we need to actually unseat some of these individuals who are sitting there in the House of, uh, uh, House of Legislature and the, the State Senate. We need to make sure these people are sympathetic and compassionate towards children and families in the state of Mississippi. There was uh, a mentioning of a portion of funds that are coming down now that don't require a match. There is. There's a portion of that, but right now we're still missing the mechanism to get it to the families. What do you mean? Well, the mechanism is DHS. And there's something going on in an office that I, I'm not quite sure what it is, but that money has not been allocated to those children and families. For example, we've had families on the waiting list uh, for two years now. By the time your child uh, is eligible for the program, they may actually be in grade school and missing out on some of those very important educational uh, transitions such as early childhood learning and, and a able to, um, to get along and play with children and, other, and, and be out of um, mom's sight and be around caring adults who can help mentor and mold this child. So childhood education is very important. Representative Sheck Taylor with our Desiree Frazier. Republican Senator Buck Clark of Hollandale chairs the Appropriations Committee. He says state revenues are tight. The DHS budget, Department of Human Services, is really sort of a complicated budget. And with federal funds, um, I'm sure there, there may be a few that where the federal government simply gives you money for providing some type of service. But a lot of them you have to match. That's a big buzzword now. When we talk about the highway program, you're, you're talking about match money. and So generally it's like the, the, the federal government says, we will give you a dollar if you'll spend a dollar on this. Or Anyway, you hate to lose out on anything or, or, so to speak, leave money on the table. So we're constantly asking DHS with each of those programs, tell us what minimum amount of general funds we're going to need to draw down more federal money and double your money in the service. And you need to understand that if we say just go increase it by whatever, a million, two million dollars, well, that's got to come from somewhere. And the pie is already spent right now. So you get into a balancing act, are you going to go cut, a, cut someone else? to try to draw down federal money. You know, you, uh, it's tough to leave two for one or one for one even, uh, but it, it could be something as critical, you know, are we going to cut education to fund DHS? You know, those are both equally important. Uh, the Department of Health, Department of Mental Health, Department of Rehabilitation, uh, all of those, and then all our education components. Uh, it gets into a tough balancing act and you just, in the end, you just try to do your best, spread resources. There seems to be the feeling that there isn't the will to provide what is needed for uh, families that are struggling and are on limited incomes, want to work, but are having to choose between work and providing daycares because daycare is expensive. Do you foresee the state being able to even at some point do more than just match federal funds? You mentioned about needing to go to work. I mean, that when when you hear that, that, that really plays on everybody. You know, these are people who want to get into the workforce. And you could almost say it turns into an economic development type issue that for a little bit of money spent here on the state side, you can turn in, 
citizens into productive citizens who want to work, who want, who want to be productive and provide for their families that then saves money in, a, in another area possibly. So, again, it gets back to, well, if we move money there, you know, it can help out in, in the long run and just build stronger families too. We know that. But it's, it's just when you're in tight, limited resources, everybody's competing for these dollars. And, uh, you know, we'll just do the best we can. Thank you so much, Senator Clark. We appreciate it. Thanks. Carol Burnett is executive director of the Mississippi Low-Income Child Care Initiative. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier they hope legislators will find the match money this year. The federal money is in three grants. One of the grants is a grant that requires a state match. And so the way the legislature gets involved is that when they appropriate money to DHS, that state appropriation has to include enough money for DHS to be able to put up the state money required to meet the federal match. And when DHS was asked about the failure to meet that match in 2016, they said that they were absorbing state budget cuts and that the cuts were the reason they didn't have the funding to do it. You know, uh, DHS reported to the legislators that they had a... Uh, some ideas about how they were going to try to make sure that they had the funding for 2018, the year that we're in now, and we are trying to make sure that we have that all of the funds to come up with the whole state match. And last year it was $6 million. We expect it would be around the same amount this year. Did you get it last year? My understanding of what DHS reported the year that we didn't was 2016. How much money would the match help in terms of getting uh, children off that waiting list? If we put up $6 million, it would bring in $13.2 million. So that would be a total of $19.2 million. And um, we think it is fair to estimate about $3,000 a year per child as the cost for the program. So. That would be about uh, 6,000 children. That you could get off the list. Yeah. yeah, that's a lot. And that's estimated with the current reimbursement rates and the estimated value of about $3,000 per year per child, which is low if you're looking at child care fees. Mississippi Low-Income Child Care Initiative Director Carol Burnett with MPB's Desiree Fraser. 17,000 children are served by the voucher program and another 21,000 are on a waiting list. Coming up, a conversation on the future of social workers in the state. Find out what's at stake. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Last time on the Gestalt Gardener. Is it possible to plant green peppers, sweet peppers, and hot peppers in the same area, or will the hot peppers cause your green peppers to be hot? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a little of both. Well, the hot peppers will cause the green, the sweet peppers to be hot, but that's, that's the only thing that'll be hot is the seeds. That little white mineral right. might want to peel that out unless you just like to grin when you eat because a little heat doesn't hurt anybody. <laughs> and for more garden advice, tune in to the Gestalt Gardener today, 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
The governing board that licenses social workers in Mississippi is up for reauthorization in the Mississippi legislature. Every few years, the law pertaining to social workers and marriage and family therapists has to be renewed. But if the National Association of Social Workers gets its way, this year it could be permanent. A bill that that passed the House and now awaits Senate action would reauthorize the social workers board and would not automatically repeal the authorization after a few years. Janice Sandifer is executive director of the Mississippi chapter of the National Association. She tells our Desiree Fraser why social workers across the state are concerned. This year, we are in a situation where our licensing law comes up for repeal, and this happens periodically. We are asking this year for our repeal to be removed because we've been licensed in Mississippi for 31 years now, and we are a substantial professional organization with a very solid working board of of examiners. Mississippi Board of Examiners for Social Workers and Marriage and Family Therapy is part of that licensing law, and it's what helps keep the education, the testing, and the professionalism for social work viable in this state, so it will be like every other state in the country that has some credentialing for professional social workers. So tell us in layman's terms, what is at stake? Our licensing law. If our licensing law disappears, and that's House Bill 988, then, of course, our licensing board will disappear, and licensing for social workers in Mississippi will disappear. We have 11 schools of social work that are accredited by the Council on Social Work Education. People dedicate their lives to social work at the bachelor's, master's, and doctorate level. They spend a lot of money on their education. They have very difficult and challenging jobs that they go into. We serve people from the cradle to the grave in all manner of life issues. We have another issue that is extremely significant. We are fighting Senate Bill 2775. This bill is a bill that will do some good things for some boards. There are 54 professional licensing boards in the state, and a small group of boards, ours included, were put into this bill for review and combination of administrative services. For some of these boards that have difficulty with administration and keeping it funded, that's great. Our licensing board has been self-funded. Now, we know all the money is for Mississippi, but it is self-funded. All of our fees support all of our licenses. We have 3,600 licensed social workers in Mississippi. 1,800 of those are bachelor's-level licensed social workers. When these boards are combined, then that will mean that all of our funding will go toward a shared assistance system within the Department of Finance and Administration. We don't want that. We don't think that is fair or appropriate. We set up our board so that it would remain self-funded and that we would not be a burden on the state and it would keep our license fees low and it would help promote our standards and protect the public, which is the primary goal of any license. So what would be the problem with taking away the licensing for social workers? The problem for taking away the licensing for social workers is you would have the situation where everybody feels that they can be a social worker because they're a good person, they have a degree in psychology, sociology, or whatever. Social work itself is a very specific discipline. It is a practice-oriented discipline, much like nursing. You wouldn't necessarily want somebody to just learn nursing theory and then go into an operating room. 
The same is true with dealing with people's emotions, their psychological state, as well as community issues such as poverty. You need someone that has the training to do the interaction, the support, the ability to do appropriate engagement and assessment, do an intervention plan, and then help people when they move on. This is a skill set. It is not a theory. And that is what social workers provide. If our board is combined in the Senate Bill 2775, what that's going to mean is our social workers, and we have three tiers, and the 1,800 bachelor's level social workers, their licensing fees will be helping to support not our board anymore, but a combined group. So they will be essentially paying their fees to support veterinarians, engineers, psychologists, funeral directors, a whole host of other boards. That is not fair or appropriate. These people make $25,000 a year. We want out of that bill. Who authored the bill? The bill in the House, there was initially a bill in the House, was authored by Representative White. And that bill was changed, and we were removed along with another handful of boards. The bill in the Senate, I can't remember who authored that bill, but they were companion bills. And we were hoping that the House bill, which was amended, was going to come through the process and the Senate bill would die. But last Thursday night, instead, the House let their version of the bill die that we were removed from, and now the Senate bill is moving on. I believe that there's intense pressure from the administration and other groups who really would benefit from combined shared services to make this bill a reality. And we don't have a problem with that. We have a problem with our social workers who pay their fees to have an individual board and who don't make these incomes paying for everybody else's board. That's where we have a problem. Social Workers Statewide Executive Director Janice Sandifer with MPB's Desiree Frazier. Coming up, we'll hear from an expert on how tax law changes could affect Mississippians. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. For Moments in Black History, we highlight Mamie Teal, the mother of Emmett Teal, who was murdered in Mississippi on August 28, 1955, at the age of 14, for being accused of inappropriate behavior with a white woman. With courage and strength, Mamie Teal insisted that her son have an open casket funeral. The pictures of Emmett Teal's badly beaten body helped spark the civil rights movement throughout the country. We salute Mamie Teal for her courage. This has been MPB's Moments in Black History. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Some Mississippians are asking how changes in tax laws will affect their income. With tax season now in full swing, some may be looking for major differences in their tax returns. Donna Davis is professor of law at the University of Mississippi. She tells us what to look for and where to find it. There aren't changes for individuals in this tax package for the 2017 year. So when you file your return for this year, by this April, you'll use the same rules that were in place in 2017. This act becomes effective for the 2018 tax year. Has it already gone into effect? It has gone into effect, and people should begin to see some of the changes in their paychecks either now or very soon because the rates have come down and the brackets have changed, uh, and so there should be less withholding being taken out of their check. And so while the rules for filing your return don't kick in yet, you are seeing some of the effects of it. What is the purpose of raising the tax brackets? What does that do? 
it allows people to have more income taxed at a lower level. And so the changes are a combination of having the tax brackets be a little bit higher and having the rates that apply to those brackets being a little bit lower. What is the biggest change that will likely affect Mississippians specifically? The thing to keep in mind about Mississippi is that we are a relatively poor state, and therefore this bill, which is tilted very heavily in favor of the high-income taxpayers, we fall into those lower brackets where the changes just don't bring in as much tax relief. So, for example, our median income here in Mississippi is about $17,000 less than the federal median. And so we're going to fall into the brackets where the tax change is not going to be great. It'll be some reduction, but not large amounts. This process or these levels go until 2025. Do they change between now and 2025? Some things phase out before 2025, but the main thing to remember from now until 2025 is that the changes will expire after 2025, and so there are dramatic change after that. What you need to pay attention to from now until 2025 is the technical definition of inflation, because that's been changed. And so what will happen over the time between now and 2025 is inflation will be computed more slowly. And so the benefits that are available available will just erode over that period of time. Does that mean at 2025, those inflation rates go back to 2017? No, the inflation rates will affect the growth in the uh, brackets Uh, between now and 2025, and then we'll revert to 2017 law, but because those benefits will have deteriorated over that period of time, many people actually end up owing more tax liability in 2027, um, especially in those lower income brackets where many Mississippians find themselves. Could you talk about how this new tax law will affect your average Mississippian? There are certain provisions that will help Mississippians, and and they are, for example, the standard deduction is increased. But this is one of those examples where Congress gives with one hand and takes away with the other. And so while it sounds like the um, you're going to get that double standard deduction and that's going to double your amount of total deductions, that's not quite accurate because at the same time Congress took away the personal exemption amount and so, for example, if you're an individual, um, your, your standard deduction was a, a little over $6,000 and your exemption was a little over $4,000. So that would mean $10,000 of total deduction. Well, what's happened is now the standard deduction has gone up to 12000 a little more than 12000 but the personal exemption has been taken away. And so the increase for a single individual is really only about $2,000. Because Congress changes, people are elected, and and the House may sway from Republican to Democrat or vice versa in the Senate. Does that mean this tax overhaul system could change with a new Congress? It could change, although 
with President Trump still in, in that position, obviously, even if the Congress turns over, then the president always has the ability to veto bills coming out of Congress. And so I see this being fairly stable in the short run. One of the problems with the bill is that it has this expiration date for the individual changes. I think the assumption is that the Congress that's in place when the expiration happens will extend these benefits. And so really having them expire early is a way of hiding the true cost of the tax bill, but you don't know who's going to be in place uh, in, in 2025 or 2026 and whether these, these benefits will be extended or not. But if not, people will find themselves in a, and many people will find themselves in a worse position than had the law not changed at all. This is going to cost more than a trillion dollars. How do we pay for it? This is always the dilemma uh, of tax cuts is that they have to be paid for some way. And uh, while some people uh, assert that the tax cuts will pay for themselves in increased economic activity. Historically, that has never been the case. And so then it come, the pressure comes back to either you have to have a higher deficit, which increases government borrowing, which pushes out private borrowing, or you have to cut benefits, especially entitlement programs that are the big spending items. There's just more and more pressure to cut those programs. Donna Davis is an associate professor of law at the University of Mississippi. Professor Davis, thank you so much. Thank you. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's the Gestalt Gardener. At 10 o'clock, it's Next Stop Mississippi. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy for Women. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again Monday morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation's Get to College program. Based in South Haven, Jackson, and Ocean Springs, Get to College advisors help students and families plan and pay for college. Learn more.